And uh, speaking of the downfall of our own department, we have a note here from London. The British Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC, department that teaches English by radio and television, has put a little new pizzazz in their course. You know, we used to think of England as being a rather staid country. Christopher Dilke, director of the course, says a striptease model tears off her clothes. This is on television, you know, for the kiddies. This is their version of Sesame Street. As each item is removed, the teacher spells out the name of the garment on the blackboard until finally she's down to the buff. He says, which always gives the kids a great thrill. It says, Dilke said, and we quoted, students do pick up the language when they're faced with such interesting and compelling lessons. We feel it's a step forward in education. Yes, indeed. And so we'd like to salute the BBC, who's once again taking the lead in the downfall of Rome department. And uh, <laughs> that's another way, you know. Isn't that something how everybody turned to rationalize nakedness? Nobody just wants to admit it, you know. Now they're using it to teach English. It's very serious. Can you see B-R-A? Now say it, kiddies, after me. P-A-N-T-I-E-S. Now say that. But she's just taken off. Now say it again. <laughs> oh man, where will it ever end? Now, all right, tonight, uh, we've got something very special for you tonight. At least it's very special for me and I think a few other people. Have you ever had the chance to visit a place, a scene? of an early job that you had in your feckless youth, revisit. I would go back to some place where you once worked as a kid and a place you've never had anything to do with ever since and you've just thought about it from time to time. Rarely. You ever had that experience? It's a very eerie experience. And a few days ago, I revisited a place which formed a great part of my early life. I mean, it was one of those great educational moments in my life. It's like if a kid grows up, let's say, in Gloucester, Massachusetts, Gloucester, and uh, in his teens he works on a fishing boat. He would never forget that. It would always form part of his life. Well, a few days ago, I went back with a television crew using tape and color tape, beautiful color tape, and we taped the show. Now, I want you to listen carefully to what you're about to hear. Turn up your microphone, your, 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 your gain there. Turn up your volume of your radio and listen to this. I doubt whether many of you have ever heard this. In fact, I know most of you have never heard this. You will never get an opportunity to hear it again. So turn up the gain and listen carefully.
listening to one of the most terrifying sounds and one of the most spectacular sights, which I can't, of course, show you, in, uh, let's say, heavy industry in the world today. Listen to these guys talk. These are, these are highly trained technicians working in the basic oxygen furnace, which is a tremendous operation inside Inland Steel, one of the most modern methods of making steel. And incidentally, one of the most spectacular to watch. It's a fantastic furnace, tremendous thing that stretches stories and stories up above you. And basic raw oxygen was being shot into this flaming maw, this tremendous torch. And this is the way it sounds. And these guys are operating this thing. So you don't get within uh, 100 yards of it before your hair starts to curl right on your head from the tremendous heat that it's laying out. These are highly skilled technicians, believe me. These are metallurgists, as a matter of fact, the ones I was talking to. And they're working this thing. It's like, it's like being in charge of the seventh inner circle of Dante's Inferno. Now listen carefully to this tape. Okay, set that back. I'm afraid of These tapes are unedited. These are very raw tapes that were cut for a television show. Okay, now reset that, Jay. Go all the way back. You're too close to the end there. Go all the way back to the beginning of that tape. And while they're doing that, I'll mention briefly, this is WOR New York. And for those of you who are, is it too early for the station break? Uh, we'll do another one later. Keeping all those little people happy. Now, uh, well, while he's resetting these tapes, I'd like to remind you that we have, among other people with us tonight, we have Great Shanghai. And uh, coming up this weekend, of course, if you're coming into New York and you're scrunching around in the heat here in Fun City, you want to, you know, it's it's very strange that this town is difficult to find a good restaurant open on a Sunday. And up at uh, 103rd and Broadway is a place that you uh, will find very worth visiting. It's the Great Shanghai. And they have this great Chinese brunch, which is on uh, from 11 o'clock to 3 o'clock every Sunday. And for $2 and a half, you can eat all the Chinese food you want. They have a tremendous selection of entrees to choose from and wonton soup and a whole bit. And if you're a kid under four feet tall, <laughs> you can eat all you want for half price. Now, you can be seven feet wide, so uh, it's worth it. This is the Great Shanghai at 103rd and Broadway, and they're open seven days a week, and generations of Columbia students have, have fomented revolution. Uh, sitting there over a great Shanghai egg roll. Okay? Now, uh, uh, Jay, do you have the Tijuana thing in there for us? Hello, Test. Hello. Can I get your attention? Please play the Tijuana Small commercial for me. Please. I know. That's very enigmatic. <laughs> I don't like the sound of that. But uh, uh, now, have you got some more of those up there? Now, for those of you who wonder what this is all about, uh, uh, I, I uh, went back to I went back to uh, Inland Steel, a place where I worked briefly for oh, a few a year or so, two years, something like that, when I was 17. And uh, for those of you who don't know anything about a mill town, I can uh, only say that, that uh, the entire town and that whole region is pretty well based on steel. And 
and uh, what happened in the mill would send ripples through everybody's lives. And all the time, uh, from the time I was a little kid, uh, you could see the steel mill laying on the horizon, just laying there like some uh, great mountain range. It's a very mysterious-looking place, and it covers hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acres. And, of course, uh, the public is not admitted to most parts of the mill because of the tremendous danger and so forth that's involved. And as a mail boy, I, I uh, ran all over the mill. I, I uh, spent six days a week running up and down uh, ramps, going up to the top of the blast furnace and down, running across to the yard scales and across to the slag scales and through the number one AC and the number two AC and through the coke plant and the blast furnace, the hot strip and the cold strip and the tin mill and the 14-inch merchant mill, all these tremendous tremendous mills, all in one great complex. Uh, in Inman Steel today, there's uh, 23,000 people working in this mill. And that's a pretty good-sized city right there. And it goes, of course, 24 hours a day. And the one thing that hits you when you first go to the mill, if you're not used to it, is the fantastic sounds. There's a tremendous roll. Now we'll do it. This is W.O.R. New York. What is all this cockamamie business? Uh, but nevertheless, uh, it's the tremendous rolling great tidal waves of sound of all kinds. In fact, the sounds are so broad in spectra. That is to say, they, they have so many highs. That is high notes, high frequencies, and so many lows that you really can't record them. They just don't record on conventional recording equipment. In fact, they don't record on any recording equipment. Also, the, the sound level is so high that it's impossible to keep your gain at any kind of a manageable level. And in fact, in some mills, the men uh, work in such a tremendous sea of sound that they that they've evolved a very complex system of sign language. They only speak to each other by sign language. And they can talk for hours. A guy will be way up at the top of, a, of an overhead crane, maybe 100 feet above the floor of the mill. And this mill is roaring. And uh, he's talking to some guy down on the base, down on, walking around on the floor down there, and they're talking by sign language. And they may not even be talking about work. In fact, one of the guys was telling me a little thing. He said that... He says the other day, he says he was, he's looking up at the crane and the guy's giving him, giving him the sign language, see? And uh, he's uh, trying to figure out what he's saying and, it, and he's talking about lunch. You know, here it is, it's about 10 o'clock in the morning. He says a couple hours before lunch and he can't figure out what the guy's saying. He's, he's saying lunch, lunch. And then he finally realizes what he's saying. He says, and I dropped my hard hat and I ran like hell to, to go where my lunch was. The guy had said by sign language, there's a rat eating your lunch. <laughs> so, you know, the mill is is another world. I mean, most people here in the city, of course, they think the heavy industry is the old spice plant across the river in, in uh, Clifton, New Jersey, where they make shaving cream. Or uh, they think heavy industry is getting a job at the Greyhound station uh, or pushing a cart somewhere up and down 7th Avenue. But this is truly heavy industry where almost everything is lethal. And where the great weights and the fantastic uh, pressures and heats and, and uh, all kinds of extremes of temperature are always there, uh, and of course, as well as the sound and the enormous exhalations of the gigantic furnaces. Now, 
one of the things that I remember as a, as a kid, incidentally, this may surprise a lot of you, that the inland plant that I went to here a couple of weeks ago has not changed discernible, discernibly. In fact, one of the guys said to me, you know, everybody's very proud, and he says, I'll bet the mill's changed a lot since you were here. And I said, like hell, it's changed about as much as the Grand Canyon has. I mean, it's exactly the same as it was. And he had to admit, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> making steel is making steel. And when you're making steel, it's a pretty basic proposition, and yet it's so tremendously complex. Uh, one of the things that we did, that we, we taped this for a television show, it's magnificent color, and went all over the, all over the show, all, all over the whole plant. We went everywhere. And we had, uh, we had a mobile truck, and we moved in and out, and the guys that were with me had never seen anything like this. I was the only one of the party who'd ever been in the mill. And to a man... They were floored. I mean, really floored. They were stunned. In fact, one of the guys, the cameraman, who is a fine cameraman, television cameraman, said that, that uh, he just couldn't get over it, the beauty of the place. He says, you know, he says, you could take as an assignment from a magazine here, and if you're a fine art photographer, he says, you could spend one solid year, six days a week, ten hours a day in this place, and never exhaust even a quarter of the beauty that's in this place. Now, you have to have an eye for that kind of beauty. It's not the beauty of the conventional beauty, but it's so awesome, so tremendous, that you, you tend to forget that man built this place. It's like a force of nature. It really is. And in some ways, it is. After all, it's, uh, I, I suspect that the steel mill is the greatest thing that man has ever built. It's probably the, uh, the biggest operation. There are certain big dams, there are certain great uh, pl uh, generating plants, but these are only devoted to one single operation. They do one thing. But a steel mill ranges all the way from a fleet of tremendous boats that come down from Duluth to uh, a final place where they ship out little bolts and nuts that they've made, and that's tiny compared to what they actually produce. They produce almost, well, an infinite variety of steel and steel things, but it starts all out. You know, it starts out with raw ore. A steel mill really makes steel. And when you walk around, you look at your car, you look at the, your refrigerator, does it ever occur to you that somebody made that metal? Not the refrigerator, but the metal itself. They really created this thing out of this raw ore. And uh, one of the most spectacular sights is, of course, the open hearth, which most people have seen in movies, but there's no way to tell you how it really is. You know, it's very personal, too. There's one guy in an asbestos suit who has probably one of the most dangerous jobs in, in the world, and it's his job to go down with a long pole. He's got a special kind of suit. He looks like, a, he looks like a, an astronaut, as a matter of fact. And at exactly the right moment, though, the whistle starts to blow. You hear, it blows in an increasing frequency. And all over this great mill, this whistle's blowing. That means they're about to tap a heat with dynamite and with this pole. And he touches down in there and touches a clay plug. And kaboom, she explodes with a tremendous explosion. And I remember as a kid running through that place with my mail bag. And every time I was going through there, when they were about to tap a heat, uh, I was going to be late that day because I, I, would, I couldn't, couldn't help it. I just had to watch it. 
It's like the most compelling piece of theater in the world. It's just so basic and so dramatic and so dangerous and so spectacular and colorful. And the sounds are so uh, overwhelming that it is natural theater and the ultimate. For any of you who have ever, you know, who are hung on the theater, I can only say that, uh, that everything you've ever seen in the movies or the theater uh, is, is really just children's stuff compared to uh, about a half an hour spent in the BOF. Now, what is the BOF? This is a thing called the Basic Oxygen Furnace, and it's a, la it's a very modern, highly uh, complex method of producing steel in, in a much quicker technique than the old, uh, the old open heart, which takes four, five, six hours for a, for a, for a, for a heat to be ready. A heat is one big ladle full, you see. Well, in the blast, in the BOF, which is the basic oxygen furnace, it's just like as if you took a, a fireplace. Now, you've got a fireplace. An open hearth is a hearth, you know. If you took a fireplace, and you know, you know what a fireplace is like, that hearth that's burning away, well, it burns at a certain speed uh, using uh, air, using conventional air. Well, now, what would happen if, instead of air, you were to somehow get pure oxygen and you were to blast pure oxygen into this? Let's say you've got yourself a hibachi. You know what a hibachi is like, this little charcoal furnace? If you were to take pure oxygen, I mean pure oxygen, under tremendous pressure and blast it right down into this, this coke, you'd get a fantastic fire. <laughs> it would be the hottest fire under God's creation, and that's exactly what, in a very rough form, the basic oxygen furnace is. And so when they charge this baby, they'll put the, all the ingredients of the steel in there, every, everything from manganese to scrap iron, everything, and this giant ladle is there, and they'll turn the this, this oxygen on, and it's just a tremendous sight, it, uh, and, and it just radiates heat. It's just so hot that uh, that you just can't believe that a human being can stand it. And these guys, these very casual guys walking around, wearing, everybody has to wear special goggles in that, in that area. And, uh, yes, and, and how? Because of, uh, of, the, of the complexity. Of course, always flying through the air there because of the fantastic pressures that are involved are tiny fragments of metal. And, in fact, one of our party was wearing these big uh, safety glasses, and this piece of metal just shot across her safety glasses and left a great scratch right where her eye would have been. Nobody is allowed anywhere near this place without all proper safety. You wear asbestos clothing to be there. And this is the way it sounds. These guys working away. Yeah. Here they're talking it's back. Come back in the yard. Move it around a little bit. There's a lot of scrap in it. Yeah. So these guys are talking back and forth on walkie-talkies. Now they're widely separated. about their work. There's no kidding around. This is highly dangerous, skilled work. 
Now, that roar you're hearing, in actuality, I know it doesn't come through just the way it should on, on radio and through that little loudspeaker here, but this roar that you're hearing is absolutely overwhelming. They're just about to tap this BOF. They're getting down to a critical moment. The time they tap it, actually, they just tip it over and it starts spilling into these, these great molds. And at that moment, that place is like Dante's Inferno squared. Somebody shoot cigarette ashes into your eyes and you'll know what this is like. Instead of setting it back, go forward, okay? Uh, these tapes have just come in, and they're, they're absolutely, as you can tell, raw. These are totally unedited un, uh, or anything like that, because I want you to hear just what it sounds like. Uh, one of the things that surprised me, and this really did throw me, 
I arrived back in the mill. Now, I hadn't been there since I was 17. And would you believe it? Guys at the mill, there were guys at the mill who were there when I was there, and they remembered me. <laughs> they really did. And one guy comes up to me. See, he's got these great big goggles on. He, he puts out his hand. He said, you remember me? And I said, yeah, Chester Gotch. And he says, hey, he said, uh, How'd you get in television? <laughs> he was trying to figure out how I made it from the mill, you know. And uh, this this whole scene was so uh, was so surrealistic to the people who were with me that uh, it took a couple of days for them to even get oriented to, to the fact that they were actually seeing something real. Uh, of course, to anybody who worked in the steel mill, within a short time, I I felt quite a quite a bit at home. I'm getting a message from the control room here, so we'll see what it is. Okay, now, I'm going to let you hear something which is really something to hear. Uh, this is a tape which I recorded on the open hearth floor. Now, the open hearth floor, of course, you've probably seen films of this. John Wayne, I think, made a film called Pittsburgh. Uh, but the open hearth floor is is the scene of, of uh, probably the most basic operation in steel. And any guy who's ever worked on the open hearth floor has been there. I'll tell you, he's, he's, no, seriously, he's been there. Uh, this is combat. Uh, it's dangerous, it's hot, it's extremely tough work, not only physically but mentally because there's always danger present on the open hearth floor. And the open hearth is just that, it's an open hearth. In fact, you ought to take a look in your dictionary and see how they describe open hearth. It's a, uh, it's a system, a series of, of, of open hearths and uh, great ladles and tremendous cauldrons of, of, uh, of molten metal. Now, there is a man who is in charge of all this. He's like the chef. Uh, he's in charge of four or five open hearths, and he's called the melter. His job is to know precisely when that metal is right. And each heat is a different kind of metal. They're not just making steel. They're making all kinds of steel. There's low-grade steel. Some are very high-grade, expensive steels. Some are extremely hard steels, manganese steel, tungsten steels, and so forth. And uh, they, 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 a man can make a mistake in this situation that will cost the company hundreds of thousands of dollars on one badly tapped heat. So he's really on the firing line. And the second melter, the first assistant melter, the third melter, these are all highly complex jobs. They're not really assistants. They're all various specialists in their own right. Now, this is the way it sounds on the open hearth floor. Okay, we're living in the... Uh, and I'm doing a little commentary. I'm going to start going somewhere else. sound of the open heart floor. We're standing about uh, 20 or 30 feet above the open heart, and uh, they're going to snap the heat in about 10 or 15 minutes. And I'm looking down the length of the open heart floor, which is a good mile or so in length, and all the building that's in is probably 30 stories high, 30 stories floor to ceiling. And this is the sound of the open heart floor, just general sound. And you see tiny figures moving up and down the, the uh, steel ramps on the open heart, watching this great cauldron through 
sides of the open house floor, Frank. Frank was the melter standing next to me. He was looking at me like these dumb TV people.
hazards of working in this mill is quite often the guy's hearing becomes impaired. Constant pressure in the eardrums after a few years. And it was rather hot, too, uh, but not as hot as you might think.